0: In our examination of the creation narrative provided in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, two big realities emerge. And we've mentioned them before, but we'll reiterate them because they're important. First, God created all things. Everything that was made was created by God. Secondly, God then specifically determined how the things he created were to function in the natural world for there to be life and order. It's not just that God created, but God was specifically interested in how creation operated. For there to be life, for things to be organized. And how did God communicate these all important things to creation? It's very simple. Chapters 1 and 2 tell us that it was through his word that God set order and life. Man, as a created being, was of no exception. After planting for man a garden eastward in Eden that contained, as we noted last Sunday, this river that constantly quenched their thirst, this perpetual river, so that they would never lack and always be satisfied, we're told, God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. As we'll see this morning, your life, my life, really does boil down to three logical questions. Three questions every one of us has to answer. The first and most simplistic but fundamental was I created by God? You have to answer that question. Really, everything else begins with the answer you provide to that fundamental question. Were you created by God or you were the process of random chance? Secondly, the second question, did God determine how my life was to function? Was I created? And then did God determine how my life was to operate? Is he interested in that? Thirdly, If he is interested in that, how, if at all, does God communicate these truths to me? Three fundamental questions everyone has to answer that really sets the tone for your life. For the enjoyment of of your life, the maximizing of your life. Was I created by God? Does he care how my life functions? And if so, does he go on the record as to how these things are to take place? Consider for a moment. That if there is no creator, if that's your answer to the first question, all bets for human behavior are off. As a matter of fact, what's yielded from this is nothing more than nihilism, narcissism. If let's say there is a creator, but your conclusion is that he's hands off, that he set some things in motion, set some life in order, but he really allows how things take place, how things function to be determined by the individual, then if that's your perspective, basically God created, but he hasn't gone on the record, he hasn't really articulated how things are to function, well, at that juncture, you're now left to map your own course, which is relativism. You can determine what and when and how you want to live. However, if there is a creator who has determined how your life is to function through his word, which we would call revealed truth, absolute truth, it is only then the height of human arrogance to conclude that you're right and God is wrong when it comes to how you should live your life? Once again, these three questions set a logical structure for how we're to live and operate in the world. And sadly, I have found that Christians, by and large, tend to be the most arrogant and illogical group within our society. Let let me explain by just providing an illustration to my point. If there is no God, you have no logical reason to wait until you're married to have sex. Just being honest. If there's no god, then why wait for marriage or why get married to begin with? If let's say there is a god who you've concluded takes a hands-off approach, you know, doesn't clearly articulate himself, then it's also logical for you to then be the arbitrator of such things, for you to be the one to determine as to whether or not or when you should have sex before marriage. It's all on you. Case in point, 88% of unmarried American adults between 18 and 29 are engaged in sexual activity. 88%. However, if you believe that God not only exists, but has articulated by his word, that sex should be reserved for the confines of a marital relationship, then why is it that an astounding 80% of Christian adults between 18 and 29 are still engaged in premarital sexual activities? You you see how illogical that really is? It's one thing for you to be like, there's no God, man, I'm gonna go party, sleep whoever I want to, it ain't no thing. It would even be illogical for you to be like, yeah, there's a God. His word is kind of how you interpret it. It's really about me and making decisions. You know, love wins, right? And so I'm going to go out and I can just do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it. I can sleep with whatever, whomever, whenever. It's all good. That's, while wrong, still logical. But it's the person who's like, there's a God, He's given his word. It's revealed truth. He's told me how these things should function in my life that I should wait till marriage. Do you know what? I think I know better. That's stupid. And worse yet, it's illogical and why so many lose respect for Christians who claim to have a moral position, but their behavior doesn't lead up to it, doesn't match it, doesn't correlate. Ask yourself, if God determines indeed how your life should function. And he limits certain behaviors, which his word does. You have to ask, are these determinations motivated by love, God's love for me, or by something else? You see, when it's all said and done, everything boils down to this. Obeying God's word is the only logical reciprocation of God's love. Obedience shows that I'm accepting and walking and enjoying his love for me. With disobedience, either being evidence of deliberately rejecting his love or worse yet questioning the very essence of his love. So important you understand this morning that God's singular command in the garden to, to Adam and Eve was not designed to restrict man's enjoyment of the world he had been given, but was instead focused on preserving man's enjoyment. God was clear of every tree. In this garden, you may freely eat, enjoy, be satisfied. There's just one tree that God determined was off limits. And why? Why did God say, don't eat of that fruit? Because it's better than the rest? No, he says, and the day you eat of it, you're going to die. Like, that's not restrictive. That's protecting. God gave this one command for a simple reason. He knew that in eating the fruit and thereby acting in rebellion to his creator there would be terrible and tragic consequences for man. And you have to make the same decision. Are God's commands motivated out of love, not to restrict, but to protect, to ensure my enjoyment, to protect me from the harm? Or is it something else? God knew that if he ate the fruit, instead of a created order, everything God created would descend into chaos. God knew if man ate the fruit, this garden to enjoy would be replaced by a world man would would have to toil in. Instead of walking with God, man, if he ate the fruit, would find himself isolated from his God. Instead of the earth satisfying, the earth would only serve to frustrate. Instead of enjoying community with one another, Adam and Eve, man, if he ate the fruit, would for the rest of his life live in constant conflict with one another. Instead of lasting pleasure, our lives would be filled with continual pain. Instead of work flowing from our relationship with God as sweet worship, at best our work would be labor. At worst, it would be warped into a religious mechanism that would continuously fail to create a parameter whereby we could re-earn God's favor. God knew that if man ate the fruit instead of abundant life our rebellion would bring with it only certain death. Please understand. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't issue commands to rob you of fun and pleasure and enjoyment and life. His commands are not designed to restrict but to protect. He's not wanting to limit your pleasure. Rather, his instructions are designed to maximize it. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? As we'll see with Eve, it all boils down to whether or not you believe that one statement is true. Before we dive into Genesis 3, you need to realize how critically important this chapter is to your your understanding of the entire Bible. You see, Genesis 3 tackles two fundamental topics every philosophy and every religious system or worldview must address. First, Genesis 3, this chapter, provides an explanation for the human condition. Because of man's rebellion against God, first, we see that people are broken. Second, we see... Society fails to function as God intended. And thirdly, the world no longer operates according to God's created order. Chapter 3 explains that because of man's rebellion, these things result. It answers this question. The second thing that this chapter provides an answer for, essential to really all worldviews, is that Genesis 3 provides not just an explanation for the human condition but a hope for the human condition. This chapter tells us that because of man's rebellion against God, God enacts a plan for the redemption of humanity. Secondly, God establishes gender roles so that marriage could function as God had intended. And thirdly, God uses this chaotic world To then serve as a constant reminder of the consequences of our rebellion. So the chapter itself, two sections really, two questions, provides an explanation for the human condition and a hope for the human condition. We're not going to get to all of that uh, in one sitting, but we will over the course of the next two weeks. Let's dive right in. Genesis 3 beginning with verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? <laughs> Let's just pause for a minute. What a weird transition, right? You're going to go from like the creation narrative, God creating, the seventh day God resting, this flashback to chapter, uh, in chapter two, the flashback to the sixth day how God specifically formed man from the dust of the earth, made the woman by taking from his side, this garden, this river, all of these things, chapters one and two, cool stuff. Then you get to chapter three and we're told, now the serpent was more cunning. First question you kind of have to ask is, was this an actual serpent, a slithering snake of some kind, a dragon maybe? Or is Moses here using a literary technique to describe the nature of someone specific. Let's start with just what the text tells us right from the beginning. Notice we're told the serpent was cunning. This word in the Hebrew it means subtle, shrewd, that the serpent was crafty or sly. Can even mean sensible, even prudent. Additionally we're told that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, meaning that it's logical that the serpent was part of God's created order, was a created being. Furthermore, it will become obvious this serpent was, was more than just a reptile, for God's curse in the later part of the chapter will transcend the physical and speak to a much larger, spiritually significant issue as it pertained to this creature. Note, even within the verse we read, verse 1, We're introduced to the serpent. Then we're told, Moses uses a masculine pronoun, he, Eve. We can also conclude concerning the serpent, possessed a measure of familiarity with this serpent, which is why she engages in a conversation with him. If you were to bump into a snake that starts talking to you, you're going to be like, holy snap, that's a talking snake. I'm not going to hang out with that snake. Like, that's just weird. Now, it, there's all kinds of theories that maybe all the animals talked in the garden, blah, 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 blah. Nothing tells us any of this other than this one snake, right, is, uh, is speaking. Uh, Would have been interesting if all of the animals spoke when they come to Adam and he has to name them, if there was some arguments, you know, like, you know, the giraffe is like, I really don't want to be called big, big naked creature, you know, like that just doesn't float for me. Like whatever, what we do know, the serpent comes to Eve, talks to Eve, Eve talks to the serpent. It's a natural conversation, which means that whatever reason that exists, there's some natural familiarity. Additionally, the serpent speaks about God and the things of God, which also implies that in addition to Eve having some familiar essence with the serpent, the serpent possessed some credibility when it would come to talking about the things of God. I don't think just a normal snake would be able to go on the record to the level that Eve would believe the serpent. Now, while it's true that Genesis 3 never really gives us or provides for us the identity of this serpent, in the New Testament, the cloak of mystery is is removed. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this. He says, I fear as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ in Christ. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So Paul connects the serpent who deceived Eve with Satan. Uh, John in Revelation chapter 20 gets even more specific. He, He describes the dragon, The serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. It is my opinion that because Satan is defined by these New Testament authors as being this serpent, Eve was not carrying on a conversation with a literal animal, but rather the most majestic of all the angelic host, referred to by Moses as the serpent because that's what he would become, that's what he would come to be known as, which would make sense. For, and this is fascinating to me, in Ezekiel 28, we're told that Lucifer, before the fall, before he fell from heaven, also called Satan and the devil, had dominion, was in the garden of Eden, the garden of God. Now note the Hebrew word serpent here, it can mean snake, can absolutely refer to that. But it can also refer to the shining one. Interesting that Paul would later write describing Lucifer as an angel of light. Now, one of the great theological quandaries of Genesis centers around God's creation of the angelic host and the timing of Satan's rebellion. All we know for sure is that Job 38 indicates, God indicates that the angels were witnesses of God's creation. And then you have the Ezekiel 28 passage, which affirms Lucifer was yet fallen during the Garden of Eden period. Angels existing and the fall of Lucifer occurring after the sixth and seventh day makes total sense. For the sixth day, God ended it with his evaluation that what? Everything he created was very good. Personally, Well, I have no idea when the angels were created. And I think it's kind of folly to speculate, mainly because the Bible doesn't tell us. The best you can get is in verse 1. God created the heavens, and that within that creation, the angels you could tuck in. But I am of the opinion that the only logical timing of Satan's fall coincided with humanity's rebellion against God recorded here in Genesis 3 it seems to me, and and I'm not going to go out and call this doctrine, it's an opinion, it's true. I think it's a sound opinion, though, that in the tempting of Eve, we find the ultimate manifestation of Satan's pride, where he wanted the worship that was only reserved for God, and that then God's cursing of the serpent later in the chapter, is actually God's judgment. If you read, in addition to Ezekiel 28, some of the other passages I mentioned, uh, Isaiah 14, Revelation 12, Luke 10, a lot of the language used in the latter part of Genesis 3 uh, and the language used describing Lucifer's fall from heaven, uh, the, the language seems very similar. You can study it more on your own. Regardless, the reason that any of this is important why we should take any time placing an identity to the serpent, centers around the reality right from the beginning of the Bible. I mean, we're in the third chapter, right after the creation narrative. We're told, we're given, God reveals the existence of spiritual forces in this world bent on fostering our rebellion against God. While it's true that the Holy Spirit is in the world leading humanity into greater holiness, we saw that in Genesis 1, verse 2, hovering over the face of the waters, Genesis 3 tells us, makes it clear, that there are real forces in this world actively seeking to hinder God's work. Not only do we possess the natural struggle of our flesh, but the temptation to sin and the enticement to do evil. And understand, these things don't occur within a vacuum. They don't happen within a vacuum. There is, in this world, a very real enemy, an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people who, while presenting himself as an angel of light, is incredibly cunning. He's shrewd. He's crafty. He's a formidable foe. This is why Paul exhorted the believers in Ephesians 6, verse 12. After talking about the spiritual armor we're to gird ourselves with, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not where our battle lies, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. One of my favorite books, I'd encourage you to to read it just to kind of Expand your awareness of the spiritual realm. Read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. You'll read through it and it'll, it'll cause the hairs on your neck to stick up because it's like, wow, these thoughts that come into my head, they're not always random, that they're planted. Like, like never forget, as we'll see with Eve, Satan, he never makes his true intentions clear. Like, like, it's not as though Satan came up to Eve and said, yo, Eve, like, you should eat this fruit. And let, me, and let me tell you why. Because it'll ruin your life. Like, that's not a good sales pitch. And it's not one Satan uses. He never says, hey, go to that website. It'll totally ruin your marriage and pervert your mind. Whoa, no. He's subtle and he's crafty and he's dangerous. Like to this point, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, the apostle exhorts Christians to, quote, be sober, be uh, vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Please understand, Satan's only intention for you is to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. And yet, what we're going to see from our text this morning is really two things. One, the devil, the devil cannot make you do anything. He can't make you sin. He can't make you rebel against God. And secondly, you already have all the tools to stand victorious. Let's look at how Satan begins. Look back, verse one. We're told that he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And initially, it's important to point out that Satan immediately targets the substance of God's word by intentionally twisting what God has said in order to misrepresent the reason God said it to begin with. And note, how does he do this? With a very simple, tactful question. One commentator observed the serpent enters with a bold question as to a divine revelation. But keep in mind the question that the serpent asks Eve was not designed to obtain information, but was instead designed to stir something, to begin to draw something out of Eve. God had been clear that they could eat of every tree, right? Except one. But Satan's point here right from the beginning is to introduce a measure of doubt within Eve. It's the question, right? Has God indeed said? Like in this instance, he's seeking to get Eve's eyes off of the things that God had given her and instead onto the one thing God had prohibited. Intellectually, things begin to stir. She begins to question what God actually said, as well as the reason that he said it. Never forget this. The battle of temptation always begins, right here, always begins in the mind. And it always centers itself upon the most basic human desires. In this instance, food. Well, God had given Eve everything but that one tree to enjoy, Satan wanted to stir within her a desire for that one thing forbidden. My dad always cautioned us. He said, your feet will never travel to a destination your mind hasn't already visited. It all begins here with the mind. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, so this is her response, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Honestly, listen to a lot of pastors this week. I mean, rake poor Eve over the coals. I mean, just ripped her up and down. And I have a very difficult time doing that. Like really going to task over poor Eve concerning her response to the serpent. Consider a subtlety in the way the story in Genesis 2 unfolded that that we haven't exactly discussed yet. If you read back through Genesis 2, and and, and don't do it now, maybe do it on your own, you're going to notice something interesting. The command given by God to not eat the forbidden fruit God gave to Adam before he had even made the woman. The implication of our text is that God gave Adam then the job of communicating his word to Eve. It was Adam's job to explain to his wife the specific instructions that God had set forth concerning the terms of their obedience. God made Adam this garden, this river, put man to tend and keep it, said to the man, commanded the man, don't eat. Then he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll create a helper comparable to him, made Eve. It was Adam's job to explain to Eve the terms, God's word. There's no doubt in my mind that in responding to Satan's question here, hath God said, that Eve is simply relaying the very words that had been communicated to her by Adam, that she had been taught. And yet, there's a glaring problem. You see, Eve was ill-equipped to effectively combat the attacks, the temptation of the enemy, not because she didn't know God's word, but because God's word had been omitted, amended, and tempered. It wasn't that she didn't know God's word. She didn't know God's word. Notice what clearly had been omitted. Eve says to the the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. That seems plain enough, right? Seems close enough. But But what did God actually say? God told Adam of every tree you may freely eat. You see what she left out? Every tree. Now, why is that significant? As we've mentioned, God's command was designed to be freeing to be liberating. God's command was designed to emphasize the incredible magnitude of his goodness and his grace. The command was to emphasize this garden full of trees, every tree they could eat. That was the emphasis with this one tree being prohibited, a minor footnote. Eve missed this. That God's command was to emphasize his grace and his goodness, their freedom, their enjoyment, their liberty. The one tree, it was just prohibited for protection. It was a footnote. Understand God's commands are designed, his word is, com- is designed not to tell you what you can't do. Sadly, so many pastors misrepresent that. God's word is not to, to just lay it out all the restrictions. Instead, God's word is designed to talk about life and the abundance of life you get to enjoy in Christ Jesus. That God created you, He wired you, He made you, He designed you, then He died to redeem you so that you could enjoy His favor and goodness. Too often we emphasize, when it comes to Scripture, the wrong thing. Eve, what had been omitted? God's goodness. But also notice what had been added, the amendment. In addition to minimizing the scope of God's goodness and his grace, Eve also adds the phrase concerning the one forbidden tree. Look at it. She says, nor shall you touch it. Now, what's tragic about that line is that God never said that. He never said that to Adam. Now, (laughs) don't get me wrong. I'm sure that it wasn't wise to be touching fruit from a forbidden tree that you weren't supposed to be eating from. And yet the problem was that Adam does something very dangerous. In his fear that Eve might sin, might stumble upon this tree, might eat the fruit, Adam added to God's word. And if you, as many do, consider what the problem with such an approach might be, let me explain. While minimizing the goodness of all that God affords through his grace robs the gospel message of its transforming power, legalistically adding to God's word in order to ensure someone remains obedient using fear is incredibly dangerous. Here's why. If you add to God's word, what is not in God's word, it's only logical people will begin to question all of God's word. Had God indeed said. (laughs) This was always a huge point of contention that Jesus had with the religious establishment, right? It wasn't what God's word said. It was the things that God hadn't said that they added to it. It was legalism. So, so, so understand what's happening here in Genesis 3. Adam, the poor teacher, minimizes God's grace, substitutes it with God's, with, with, with his legalism, right? And then what happens? Finally, Eve says, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Once again, that seems all fair and honest, but it would appear that Adam tempers the consequences of disobedience. It wasn't that you die. God had been clear what? You will surely die. There's a difference there. And what's the difference? God's command had been emphatic. The result of sin had been stated in such a way as to be a deterrent. But Adam had softened The implications wasn't you'd die. You'd surely die. There's no wiggle room. Well, we're told in verse four that the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. After getting Eve to question God's word, and then after seeing that Adam had failed to accurately communicate God's grace in favor of legalism, Satan now targets the fundamental truthfulness of God's word to do what? To target the essence of God's goodness. You will not surely die. He replaces it with, you'll be like God. It's a total contradiction. What Satan is saying to Eve, if you boil it down, is that God's instructions were not actually there to protect her from harm, but existed to prohibit her from the full enjoyment of God's creation. In a sense, what Satan is claiming is he's saying, Eve, God's holding out on you. Like the attack, it focuses and it centers on the character of God. If God was indeed holding out on Eve, then the command not to eat the fruit was not loving. Instead, you would conclude it was selfish, that it was restricting. C.H. McIntosh remarked concerning this point, quote, "'You cannot place confidence "'in one who manifestly does not love you. "'For if he loved you, "'why should he prohibit your enjoying "'a satisfying privilege?' It should be pointed out that all rebellion against God stems from our desire to be our own God. Did you notice that? You won't die. You'll be like God. You'll be God. The idea of supplanting the position of God in my life with myself, your life with yourself, you taking the throne, the reason that that's appealing is that if I can do that, then I can do what I want without the safeguard of divine accountability. Instead of God's word determining order, my opinion becomes my ultimate authority. Oh, do we have a culture engaging in that process? Verse 6 So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now that Satan had effectively gotten Eve questioning the truthfulness of God's word and the essence of God's love for her, it was not very hard to get her to focus now on what had always been forbidden, right? See see the logical sequence here? Consider that if the basis for no, don't do that, is God's love, and I know that, and I accept that, then I'll obey that. It's his love. But if I believe that the basis of no is anything but his love, then partaking of what is forbidden, that's only logical. If there is no God, then I'm not accountable to a God. If I was not created, and he doesn't weigh in on how I'm to operate, Then I can operate however I want to operate. Notice, Eve saw that the tree was, quote, good for food. We would call this the lust of the flesh. We're also told that when she saw it, she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, or the lust of the eyes, and, quote, desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. First John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. The apostle writes, do, "Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world." And then he says, "The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and she took the forbidden fruit, and death reigned, not life. Tragically, we're told that Eve believed this lie. She had come to believe, ever so quickly, that God was not lovingly protecting her, but through his commands was instead holding out on her. Eve believed God's word was not true. So what happened? She took of its fruit. She ate. She gave some to Adam and he ate. And note, does Satan force Eve? Does the serpent take that fruit and force it? No, no. No, she she willingly did it. Satan cannot force you to act against your will. No man, because we're free moral agents, can ever say, the devil made me do it. And yet, this is interesting, that free will, in the biblical context, free will affords us the right to make decisions. But every decision boils down to this. It's not liberty, but who I will serve. Everyone serves something. Your desires, social pressure, parents, doesn't matter. We're given free will not to make our own decisions in this liberty idea, but rather to choose who I'm going to be in service to. God or something else. And when you make decisions, ask yourself, who am I going to serve through this decision? Isn't God and his love, most worthy. What's sad about this story is the reality that Eve, Eve succumbed to the lie that God's word was not true. Why? Because she really didn't know God's word. Right in the beginning. We're shown here in Genesis 3 how vitally important it is that you know God's word if you're to obey God's word and then maximize the life God created you and died to redeem you to enjoy that he created you for. As the psalmist sang in Psalms 119 verse verse 11, he said, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you you will never find someone who obeys God's word and regrets it. You will only find people who reject God's word, act against God's word, and live to regret it. I'd also add that Genesis 3 illustrates the importance of effective and accurate Bible teaching. This is really where the failure was. Adam didn't, teach Eve correctly. Should there be any surprise that the increasing culture of Christian compromise within the church today concerning fundamental Bible truths has directly coincided with the perpetual failure of the church to teach the whole counsel of God? Should there be any surprise that millennial Christians' rising skepticism as to the authority of God's word has soared to new heights when many of their preachers have intentionally downplayed the incredible freedom found in God's amazing goodness and grace by adding to the scriptures legalism, legalistic rules God never gave out of fear that Christians would fall into sin. Is there any surprise that the church is tempering of the real results of sin, you'll die out of a desire to be more appealing, culturally sensitive, and tolerant, have fostered an unserious attitude concerning the full consequences of rebellion among those who even claim the banner of Christ. Please understand, God says what he means. And he means what he says. By omitting, amending, and tempering God's word, Adam, as so many today, robbed Eve of her only defense to resist the temptation of the enemy and the lure of the world. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You know, an interesting contrast that you can do on your own. It's a a great study in the context to Eve's temptation here in the garden. I would encourage you this week to look at Matthew chapter 4. For Jesus was led into the wilderness. Eve in a garden, but Jesus in a wilderness. Eve given trees to eat of. Jesus fasting and praying. And the enemy comes in three instances and tempts Eve in the same way, the same manner he does Eve in the garden. He appeals to the lust of the flesh. Take these stones, make them bread. He he appeals to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. Throw yourself off the temple and the pride of life. Just bow down. I'll give you it all. And yet in Jesus, Jesus's case, unlike Eve, how does he combat the temptation, the enticement? Every single time he says, thus says the Lord. Thus says scripture. He quotes scripture. He wields the sword with excellence in a way that Eve failed to do. The exhortation for us this morning, you have been given the exact same weapon. The son of man, God, Jesus, and taking on the enemy. He had so many other tools at his disposal. He could have been like squish or lightning bolt. And yet instead, what did Jesus do? He used the very thing we have to show us that we can stand victorious. As we close, I want to make one final observation. Notice in verse six, we're told that that Eve took and ate before giving the fruit to Adam, who also ate. To this very point, Paul makes an interesting observation in 1 Timothy 2, verse 14. Paul writes this, he says, Adam was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. This word deceived means cheated. The implication Paul makes is that there was a fundamental difference between the motivation behind Eve's actions and that of Adam's. Think about it. Eve believed the lie of Satan. She had already eaten the fruit when she came to Adam. As she approached her husband, Eve was in a sinful state. She had been promised by the devil that in eating the fruit, she would be like God, which clearly didn't happen. This is why we're told by Paul that Eve was deceived. She had been cheated, but not so with Adam. In addition to not having the same interaction with the serpent, Adam could clearly see that Eve had been cheated. (laughs) She wasn't God when she ate the fruit. This is why this is why what he does is interesting. Like Adam acts with no disillusionment. He saw Eve in the fallen state. She wasn't God. It was a lie. He knew it. Yet he still took the fruit and ate. Why? Why would he do such a thing? There was clearly something about Eve that he couldn't stand to live without like when Adam took the fruit, like Eve took the fruit and wanted to be like God. But when Adam took the fruit, he made a decision that he, that he was gonna be like Eve. And, and, and he did that. Why? B- because I hope you know, when, when, when he took the fruit, he was killing himself. He knew it. He was aware of it. So why would Adam kill himself for Eve? I think there's only one reason. He loved her more than he loved his own life. Like he could have refused the fruit and allowed Eve to stand before God in judgment alone, but he didn't. The perfect man took upon himself a fallen state so that he could seek to save his wife. His actions communicated to Eve that she would not be alone He stepped out of perfection in order to stand with her in imperfection. Adam loved Eve and would die to prove it. Consider that in Adam's actions and his love for his wife, we see a beautiful picture of Jesus and his love for who? For you and I. In a sense, we're all Eve, aren't we? We've all been deceived. We've all taken the throne for ourselves, propped ourselves up to be God, believe the lie. We've all eaten the forbidden fruit. We have all rebelled against God and his word. As a result of sin and the curse, judgment and death are now an inescapable part of our destiny and it's our fault. It's your fault. You have no one to blame but yourself. And yet, the second man, Jesus Christ, as with the first, refused to stand idly by. Jesus willingly chose to step out of his glory and to join us in our fallen earthly condition. He chose to die for one reason. He loved us more than he loved his own life. The scriptures tell us that Jesus became sin so that we might be saved from sin. While Adam joined Eve so that she would not stand alone in her judgment or death, how glorious a truth, how incredible a reality, that our husband Jesus, in his incredible love and by his amazing grace, chose not to leave us to face judgment alone, but instead died so that we might be spared death and given life. Adam's plan would fail, but that's what makes Jesus a much greater man. For he did die, but he rose to life so that we, through his death, might be given the same. It's an incredible picture.